Welcome to Blue Dot, a look at our place in space. I'm Dave Schloen. I'm a big fan of the work done by the UC Davis School of Veterinary Medicine's CDOC Society. The CDOC Society is a group of wildlife veterinarians and scientists based in the Salish Sea of northern Washington and southern British Columbia. So when I saw that they had a series of documentaries on YouTube called Salish Sea Wild, I took notice and checked them out. And I was truly impressed. Featuring CDOC's science director and wildlife vet Dr. Joe Gatos, truly a magnetic personality, the documentaries are as good as anything I ever saw on the National Geographic or Discovery channels. That is, back when they actually used to produce high-quality science-based content. So I contacted Joe and found out that the driving force behind these excellent films is producer Bob Friel, a truly talented filmmaker and journalist. The films are educational and very entertaining, based in one of the most productive marine ecosystems on the planet. Dr. Joe Gatos and producer Bob Friel join us now from their home base on Orcas Island, largest of the San Juan Islands in northwest Washington state. Joe and Bob, welcome to Blue Dot. Thanks for having us. Yeah, great to be here. You know, I've been watching these videos, and they are fantastic, and I want to talk about them in depth on this show. But I want to first start out with you, Joe. Um, tell us a bit about um, UC Davis's connection to the Salish Sea, and uh, give us a sense of, you know, where that is, because not, not everybody knows where the Salish Sea is. So let's start there. Tell us about that incredible place. Good point. The Salish Sea is this little known 17,000 square kilometer inland sea that's shared between Washington and British Columbia. And, and it didn't have a name until 2009. So it's not surprising most people haven't heard of it. They used to call it the Puget Sound, Georgia Basin, which kind of sounds like a bathtub or Puget Sound or a Strait of Georgia. And just finally in 2009, they said, hey, if we're going to take care of this place, we need a name. And let's name it after the Coast Salish, the people who have been here since time immemorial. So the name Salish Sea came from the Coast Salish, and it defines this inland sea ecosystem. And it is amazing. It's, it's just this helical, really productive place that has all kinds of cool wildlife. Yeah, you know, after watching a lot of your videos, I, I have to say, if, if I was like given point blank, we're going to relocate you to someplace on Earth and you got to go right now, where would it be? I might just <laughs> want to choose there because it's pretty fabulous. Yeah, it, it's incredible. And it's a it's a it's a really well kept secret. Um, and that's one of the cool things about the show is it just lets everybody know how amazing this place is. And then, of course, tell us a bit about the Sea Doc Society. Right. So about 20 years ago, some people said, this is an amazing place, but we need some more science. We need some more advocacy. We need to take better care of this place. And so they found UC Davis. They, they found the vet school and they said, look, you're doing wildlife health. You're doing ecosystem health. Come do that up here. We need that for the Salish Sea. And they made a donation at that time. They got the project and the program started. And we've been here ever since. Okay, well, let's let's get to you, Bob Friel. Tell me about how you got involved with Joe to become the producer of this amazing series, Salish Sea Wild. Yeah, you know, my, my parents recently, who are in their 80s, just recently told me a story that I think kind of sums up my life uh, that I didn't remember. But they told me that when I was five, I ruined my dad's good camera, you know, the family vacation and holiday camera by using it to try to take pictures of a plastic frogman 
wrestling a plastic shark in our bathtub. And so <laughs> my entire life has kind of gone on to be ocean-based, studied marine science in school, lived lived around the world in places like the Caribbean and the Maldives, uh, always based on the ocean, always doing diving, underwater photography. And, uh, you know, I went into I tried to be a marine biologist because I thought that's what Jacques Cousteau wanted me to be. And uh, I was pretty far into a double major at the University of Miami when I found out he wasn't a marine biologist. He was a photographer and a storyteller and a writer, filmmaker. Uh, so since school, I've kind of leaned that way. And I've done some detours into television. I've written some books, done a lot of magazine stories, a lot of travel adventure. And then uh, I moved out to the Pacific Northwest 16 years ago and, uh, you know, living on a little island, obviously interested in marine life. And but all my experience had or most of my experience had been tropical. So first thing I did when I got here was I signed up for a naturalist class over on another island. And Joe Gatos came in, Dr. Joe came in and did a uh, a lecture on mustelids, on otters and uh, mink and things like that, you know, not the most charismatic or exciting animals when other people were talking about killer whales and stuff. But Joe was the the most interesting part of the of the whole class. He was very engaging. He had a great sense of humor. And then, you know, just as the way we live in like a tiny town out here on the island and Ran into him, I think, at the recycling center at the county. <laughs> and, uh, you know, he learned more about my background and he started asking me, he's like, hey, can you do some photography, do some writing for CDOC? And then we started diving together. And it was really very early on um, that we were sitting on a boat between dives and I'm looking at him and what we're doing. And I said, you know, you know, I've told you all those horror stories about when I worked in television, but, you know, you've got the coolest job in the world. We live in this amazing place with these awesome creatures. This could really be a show. And Joe was wise enough to say, no, uh, you know, I've got a, I've, I've got a good steady job. There's no way I'm going to risk that on some half-baked television idea. And then I, I pestered him over, you know, 10 years, I think it was every time we were on a boat, which was often. And then I finally gave up. And then, of course, one day he came up to me, and goes, hey, what do you think about doing a show? And he said, can we can we do it for no budget? And I, of course, for my <laughs> for my sins, I said, absolutely. And here we are. And what's your version of that, Joe? <laughs> it's I hate to admit it, but Bob is right. <laughs> That's kind of the way that it went down. Um, you know, you, you meet your friends and you know them better in a minute than you know an acquaintance in a lifetime. And I was so when I met Bob, I was like, this guy's like my brother from a different mother. We we love the ocean, we love diving, we love all of this stuff. And so we, you know, we just kept hanging out. And I'm a scientist. I'm I never wanted to be on TV, radio, anything like that. I wanted to write papers and do science. And so Bob kept bringing this up. And I thought, you don't even know how painful this would be for you, Bob. Um, and then eventually I, I realized if we're going to take care of this place, if we're going to really save the Salish Sea and all this incredible wildlife, we need to get everybody involved. We need the school kids. We need the grandparents. We need the the senators and the representatives. and people don't read scientific papers. People watch cool videos of inspirational wildlife. And, and so I, I just realized that this was the vehicle that we needed to motivate people to connect to this incredible place and, and, and actually save it. 
Well, the the videos they they really have the feel of something you would see like I don't know, old National Geographic special or Discovery when they were actually producing quality content back in the day. <laughs> uh, they're really well done and well presented, and you're a very engaging host. And I'm just curious, Bob, uh, is that just did that totally come natural with Joe, or do you have to do any directing with him <laughs> at all? <laughs> um yeah i you know i i say this you know quite a bit to joe because you know when i saw him when i first saw him uh given a presentation he's great when you know he gives lots of talks at schools and uh public events and you know the it's a mixed crowd you know every grandparents to children and everybody comes comes away loving dr joe the kids Every every kid I know wants to be him. The parents love him. They learn stuff from him. Um, so, you know, my thing is trying to capture that. You know, as far as an actor, uh, Joe is a great scientist. He um, <laughs> if he if he ever has to act or something, you know, we kind of know each other really well. We can kind of see what each other is thinking. And when I see Joe trying to come up with what he thinks will be good on camera, it's <laughs> terrible. So I, I try to stop him from that. And I just try to capture, you know, the, the, the real Joe. So, you know, with, with these shows, the only the only real direct, you know, it's all cinema verite. I'm just, you know, Joe is doing what he does. The scientists are doing what they do. And my job is just to, you know, to a fault almost, you know, to the detriment of the show is I stay out of the way of the science and just try and get a camera and microphones in where they're going to be. I mean, my directing part is just that I, you know, I always, even if we're doing it on the fly, I have to have kind of the shape of a story in my head. So I can kind of direct Joe on tone. And we do a, a lot more of this when we're doing voiceover because I've got the story shape and structure in my head. So I know, you know, Joe, we need you to be excited here. Let's bring this one down. Um, the shot that I took <laughs> here is awful. So I need you to make up for it with your voice. So really show <laughs> a sense of wonder. Um, but yeah, there's a great, we, we actually have one blooper reel, I think that's online. And there's a funny clip uh, where we had just been, we were up in uh, British Columbia diving in like 42 degree water. There was actually ice we had to chip off the boat before we went out. And we went out, did a couple of dives and we come up and we're both freezing. We're both bone tired, you know, just, just had a great dive, but we're just, you know, want to get into a sauna or a, a hot coffee or something like that and but i grabbed the camera and it's like joe we need a shot and you know joe did it a couple times and the blooper is you can hear me saying joe one more time with more energy and the look on <laughs> joe's face is just priceless because he wanted to either jump off or throw me off the boat but yeah that's that's about all the directing and any anytime we do anything like that it doesn't get used anyway so yeah. the more painful it is and dave bob is humble he he has the patience of a saint because i i am i'm a i'm a fifth grader trapped in a man's body i'm a scientist i have i love this stuff i have this enthusiasm but like i said i'm i'm not an actor and so you know he, he calls me joe six take okay about five more takes and we're going to get that one right i think you know so over and over and over again and and he's really the one that works the magic by you know putting the story together putting the music together um getting the facts straight at the right point you know i mean he's he's the gift he's the magic behind the whole show for sure 
Well, I think the magic is both of you. I'd like to know, before we get into some of your topics and some of your adventures, take us through the, the creative process. How do you come up with an idea for like when you want to do a video about a certain topic? Bob? Let me start on kind of nuts and bolts, and then I'll let Joe talk about topics. But for almost all these, uh, you know, we start out with just a topic. Uh, you know, Joe and I sit together, we get a working title and a couple of words that's kind of an aspirational angle that I hope the story will come together as like, uh, you know, humpback, comeback, success, threatened. And then we both do pre-production, you know, because there's a lot of logistics setting up uh, a field shoot, you know, while I'm trying to come up with a narrative structure. So we're both making calls. Joe knows every scientist in the uh, in British Columbia, Washington, everywhere we need to be. And then, you know, again, we have an idea of what I hope the narrative structure is going to be. But that's that's a fantasy because we're dealing with wildlife. Uh, we usually only have a couple of days in the field. So whatever weather we get, whatever animals we see and how they behave, that that becomes our story or what we have to make a story. And, uh, you know, we head out into the field and. Any scientists we work with who might have done some TV in the past, you know, they're always looking for a grip truck and the rest of the crew. <laughs> but we show up and it's just Joe and I and everything we have is on our backs. And then, you know, the science happens. Joe does Joe. Um, he's often doing the actual research or, you know, working with others doing the research while, like I said, I mind, mainly try to stay out of the way of the science and just get the camera in the right place. And, uh, you know, we'll have talked through a few hoped for stand-ups, you know, where Joe's talking into the camera, but things are so fluid that, you know, they they rarely work. And, you know, I can't I can't stop Joe in the middle of something like surgery on a sea duck in order for him to do another take so you know it's it's all one one shot um so i'm pretty much a one-man band on the whole field production side of it and we just come home with whatever we get sometimes there's a natural narrative like rescuing an entangled sea lion and other times uh we just come home with a bunch of raw footage and then I do some more research, a bunch of fact checking, and then I, uh, you know, I bang my head on the wall until a story appears. <laughs> or uh, actually, actually, Dave, you'd like to, uh, what I do is I take my dog and I drag him up and down all the local mountains until a story evolves. And then I'll write the script. Joe and I talk through that script. Uh, Joe comes over to my little rustic cabin and we record uh, his voiceover and then I disappear into a cave and uh, and then put it all together, do the color, add some music. And that's the process. And like, how long does it take to put one of these together? You know, like a, a typical 20 minute episode, let's say. Yeah, it's, you know, it really varies. Some of them, you know, it, where, if the narrative is kind of natural, uh, it goes much quicker. If I don't have to take all, you know, a, sometimes we'll go out and we're just shooting, you know, Joe literally operating on a sea dock, other scientists doing that. And there's there's not really a natural narrative. So we have to kind come up with that and and also make sure that it's an entertaining narrative so we can kind of feed the science in there with lots of sugar as far as adventure and entertainment and whatever humor we can get in. So yeah, it really varies. They've been as short as two weeks and probably as long as eight weeks or so. And as far as, you know, the, the, we have a living list of ideas and, and Joe can tell you about, you know, where we go for them, what our inspiration for those. 
Yeah, we have we have probably three years worth of episodes that we want to do. And so a lot of it, Dave, is finding out like, okay, this month is the month where we have gray whales. If we're going to have gray whales from March to April. And so if we want to do gray whales, we have to get out on a boat with the scientists that are doing gray whales right now. And a lot, of, you know, we'll call up and say, hey, you know, any chance we can get out on the boat? And, and many of these scientists have seen the work. They, they know that we follow the science. They know that we highlight the work of the scientists and we give facts. We're not sensationalizing it. We're not making anything up. They like that. And so more often than not, they welcome us to come and help tell their story. Uh, so, so those ones work pretty smoothly because we know the people, we know the timing. There are other ones. We've been wanting to do an episode on this tiny little fish that looks like a golf ball called Pacific Spiny Lump Sucker for about two years now. And they're just really hard to find. And so, you know, that's always in the back of our mind. And someday we're going to be out scuba diving and we're going to find a whole mess of those and we're going to do a really <laughs> cool episode. But, but it just hasn't happened yet. We're going to take a short break, but stay with us. When we come back, we'll continue our conversation with the creative forces behind Sailor Sea Wild on YouTube, Dr. Joe Gatos and producer Bob Friel. I'm Dave Schloem, and you are listening to Blue Dot. And we're back. Let's return now to our conversation with wildlife veterinarian Dr. Joe Gatos and film producer Bob Friel from the Sea Doc Society based in the Salish Sea in northwestern Washington. Well, let's talk about some of your adventures because uh, you've had some really interesting ones and, and very poignant. You know, when I watch these, I get moved to tears at times um, by, by what you're doing because you're literally saving animals' lives in a lot of these, these episodes. For example, take us through, there was one you did uh, about, uh, I believe it was a harbor seal that was trapped. It had uh, plastic wrapped around it. Oh yeah, that was a stellar a stellar sea lion. Stellar sea lion, and you know, I, that was an amazing rescue where you had to go out and and try to tranquilize it. And as I as I remember, like the first dart didn't quite take, and you had to get it again. And uh, that looked like quite a challenge. Can you tell tell us a bit about what it's like to go through trying you know a rescue like that? Right, and that's that's one of those things where you, you almost don't want to jinx yourself by trying to film something like this because you have to go out and do it. And to think that you're going to capture that on film and get it right uh, just adds another layer. And so this is one of those things where Bob is a biologist and Bob has great eyes. And Bob was on top of that boat looking for this animal. He was not just filming, he was part of the team. And so, you know, you get out there and the weather is always something that we're concerned about, the wind, the tide, the current, um, you know, is that animal going to even be there that day that we get out there? And you, you get out there and there's, there's a giant animal, it's sick on the rocks, there's a hundred other animals there, you finally find it, and then you, you, you start doing everything that a veterinarian would hate to do. Hmm, let's just guess their weight. <laughs> um, you know, we, we don't want to get too close, but let's just imagine how much they weigh. And let's just guess that you know, what kind of condition, you know, we're doing anesthesia with no blood work. And then let's get close enough to shoot a dart in 
to a place where it's going to be safe. <laughs> you know, we're not going to hit it someplace where we're going to hurt it. And then we pretty much know that animal's got about a 50% chance of going in the water and we're going to have to find it. it and, and then once you find it, you still have to get to it. So it was one of these things where it was all of the stars had to align. Um, and, and, you know, fortunately they do align sometimes. And, and for that animal, they just align perfectly. And Bob just made a really, really compelling story about that. Yeah. And you, uh, as I, as I recall, you did get the the plastic off of the animal and you did save it and it was, you know, able to be free. And to me, it was like, there was also the bigger message you wanted to get across about, Hey, this could have easily been prevented. Yeah. And that's Bob's genius, right? The final line I think in this, all of this work could have been prevented by someone taking a couple seconds and cutting that packing strap before it got into the water. Yeah, just so that it's not able to wrap around and and strangle the animal. That was just quite right. quite amazing. Yeah, you've also had some pretty. Uh, back to is it the stellar sea lion that's the one that you compared to a grizzly? That's yeah. the one. Yeah, because yeah. that was really interesting to me. Tell tell us how a stellar sea lion is very similar to a grizzly bear. Yeah, the stellar sea lions. There, you know, we do have some elephant seals out here that wander through, and a couple have become resident. But really, our largest of the pinnipeds of the seals and sea lions is the the stellar sea lion out here, and they're gigantic. I, you know, I'll, Joe's better with the numbers, but the the bulls are, I think, twice the size of a grizzly bear, or maybe even larger. And for that episode, I went down to. University of Washington and had them pull out, uh, you know, a giant grizzly bear skull, uh, which, you know, put on camera. It's like, oh, my God, look at that. Look at those canine teeth. And then show the stellar sea lion skull of, you know, a similar uh, animal. And it dwar almost dwarfed the grizzly bear. Grizzlies are nothing to, to make little of, but the stellar sea lions are much bigger and their canines are much bigger. So, uh, you know, I have a lot of experience in the past diving with sharks and I, I love the, the idea of predators and, and all my shark friends will hate this, but the, you know, an issue with sharks is they're kind of one note, you know, they come up to the, to you, the, you know, it's curiosity, but it's hunger curiosity. So they'll come up, you know, for research or whatever, you're putting scent in the water, they'll come up and they'll get very close to you. But once they realize you're not something to eat, they'll kind of go away and lose interest. But marine mammals are much, much more intelligent. And these stellar sea lions um, and the harbor seals and, of course, the whales are playful. They will uh, approach us and, and be playful. And we we were diving up off Hornby Island and went into the water near a big haul out. And it was for me, it was like a dream come true. We were suddenly surrounded by, I think it was 60 to 80 of these 600, 800 pound animals. And they came up first out of curiosity, but then they we saw them playing with each other. They were playing catch with um, sea cucumbers and rocks, uh, you know, playing literally playing catch with each other and then started playing with us. And started nibbling on Joe. And, uh, you know, again, for me, it was a dream come true uh, because they are very intelligent and they're not around you just for hunger. It's really a curiosity and a play. And you could also tell that it was mainly the younger ones, sub-adults, just like humans would, that were that were much more playful. So it was great. I got shots of, you know, they would lie on top of you. So, uh, you know, as far as behind the scene things, Joe, Joe will I'll let I'll let Joe tell you that. But uh, <laughs> yeah. well, before it's a, it's a fun it, episode because Joe's trying to be down there being Mr. Science, and of course he knows you know 
maybe kids will watch this as well. So Joe's got a, a 600 pound sea lion draped over his shoulder and he's trying to give the okay sign that, oh, this is all good, kids. Nothing to worry about. Here. Yeah, because when I was watching that, I was thinking back to the grizzly bear comparison with the skulls. And, I'm, and, I'm, and then all of a sudden there's this one mouthing Joe. And grabbing, <laughs> grabbing, grabbing his hand and stuff like that. I'm like, I sure wouldn't want to be doing that with a grizzly bear. You sure wouldn't. No, and that's the good thing, Dave. These these animals, they're just they're puppies, right? They use their mouth to explore. They don't get angry. They're you know, as long as you don't engage with them, start pushing them back or whatever, they just want to check you out. So it's all, you know, even sometimes it looks like okay, they're they're biting. They're just kind of mouthing you, and they have incredible sensory organs around their mouth and with their whiskers and that that's the way they check things out and you know the, all these dives were just magnificent but w it was one of the first ones we were in there and you know we are cheating mother nature when we're underwater we have a time limit a depth limit and we're doing scuba so we have a certain amount of air and so we got this incredible footage and bob and i have about the same risk aversion you know we don't mess around with the scuba we're like okay this is our limit okay, we need to get out of here. And I look back and I'm like, where is Bob? Like, what is he trying to get one more shot? Like, what could be going on? And this sea lion is totally, have, has him pinned to the bottom. And it's just laying on him amorously. And and I so I wait and I wait and I wait. And then I'm like, Bob, come on, let's go. And so, you know, finally the sea lion actually needs to go get a breath. It goes up to the top. And Bob gets up. He's like, whoo, that, that was, you know, something you could see in his eyes. We start swimming to the surface. I turn around. There's no Bob. And the sea lion had gone up, got a breath, comes back, pins him down to the bottom. I don't know what cologne you were wearing that day, but this thing <laughs> wanted to marry you, Bob. It was so in love with you. Wow. Yeah. We were going to haul out and eat herring for the rest of our lives together. But, you know, as far as a behind the scenes thing, that 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 episode, you know, I'll watch over again. And it, it, it is funny to me or for other photographers and videographers who I know, because I'm shooting Joe. And one of the things I really got to love about the sea lions was that they definitely have a sense of humor. I mean, they were nibbling on Joe's head just to get a reaction from him. And at one point he's holding his, Joe carries a little GoPro with him. So he's sacrificing his underwater camera setup on top of his head so it can't pull at his, at his hood. But while I'm doing this and my whole job is, you know, just to aim the camera and keep it steady so people at home don't get seasick from it not, not rocking back and forth. But while I'm filming Joe, I've got three or four sea lions on me, biting me, laying on top of me. <laughs> and you know, all Joe can see is the camera coming out of this mass of sea lions trying to film him. So yeah, that was one of my favorite experiences underwater. Another really interesting creature that I found fascinating because I've, I've always been interested in them ever since the days of Jacques Cousteau and Octopus Octopus, uh, <laughs> that, that famous episode, is uh, you had a really cool encounter with a giant Pacific octopus, Joe. Yeah, and, and that, you know, just to kind of throw back to your interview with Simon Montgomery, octopus are amazing. And you know, we wanted to tell that story, but you don't just go down and find an octopus anytime you want to. And so we were working with a friend of ours, Florian Graner, and he was shooting an episode for maybe a German television or something like that. And he said, yeah, let's let, let's go. I know some places to go. We're going to have to go at night, but everything will be fine. And I'm thinking to myself, I, I don't know that much about octopus. So I've never studied them or anything like that. 
but I know that they're big, 150 pounds easy. And, you know, they can be 10 feet on their arm span. And so I just always want to kind of know what am I getting into? And so I remember Bob and I were talking to him before the dive. And I said, well, what, you know, what if one of these things does grab us? And he said, oh, it may grab you, but just don't fight back because it'll always be stronger than you. And so that's not reassuring. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so, okay. Yeah. So I'm just going to get drug around down there in the middle of the night. And so we were looking under this one boat and this giant, giant Pacific octopus had had a den under there. You can, you know, you can always see the crab shells. And sure enough, I'm I'm kind of looking under, is it really under there? And this thing comes out, and I don't know if you can really see it on the video, but wraps around my arm and then pulls me almost underneath of the boat. But my I have a big head, so my head didn't quite fit, you know. It smashes up against the boat, and my arm's stuck under the boat now. This thing's wrapped around my arm. And I and I first thing I did with my other hand, I just reached down, I grabbed my my gauge, and I thought, okay. I got about 20 minutes of air. So let's just not worry until about 18 minutes here and see what happens. So, um, but I was grateful that Florian said, you know, don't panic just, and then sure enough, you know, maybe a couple minutes, uh, it felt like longer that it let go. It just, you know, each one of those suckers is like a little brain. It can taste with it. It can feel, it can sense the temperature, everything like that. And yeah. just wanted to check me out. It's just sensing you. It's it's exactly. it's tasting you. It's finding out all it can through those through those incredible suckers, like you mentioned. Uh, they're just fascinating creatures. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I, the more I learn about them, the more amazed I am. Yeah, that was that was a lot of fun, and being able to see them. You know, we when Bob puts it all together, it looks like we just went out and it was there. But you know, we we do multiple dives on multiple nights for things like this. Um, so being able to see him over and over and over again was was really incredible. Okay, let's get back to another one of your your rescues because I found this to be very moving and, and also enlightening uh, is when you had the humpback whale entangled in rope. Um, they, they, I think it was some kind of fishing line, crabbing line, that kind of thing. Tell us a bit about what, what happens with whales getting entangled like that. Yeah, we, uh, Joe and I were uh, founding or some, some of the founding members of our local large whale entanglement response team. So we've been training for, I don't know what it is now, seven or eight years, uh, because as whales like the humpbacks, as whales like the gray whales recover from whaling, um, they're, and because of some effects of climate change, moving uh, their food around, they're more and more coming into contact, uh, especially with fishing gear, with uh, Dungeness crab gear, um, shrimping gear, things like that. So, uh, and there's a big problem on both of our coasts. In fact, all almost all around the world there is. And this is a really awful, awful way that we impact wildlife because whales are just so strong. They'll they'll you know be swimming around just feeding, and you know we don't have great visibility around here. So they'll go down, they'll, they'll rub against a line, they'll feel that, and especially with a humpback with those big fins, will, they usually spin. You know, I think that's kind of an innate thing they do uh, as a defense against like killer whales or something. Uh, gray whales and humpbacks will, will learn to spin when they're, when they're small calves. But if they spin when they're rubbing against one of these lines, it wraps around them. And of course, fishermen these days use plastic lines that 
that just don't degrade. I mean, it takes years and years and years, but whales are so strong that they will keep swimming. They could be carrying a 200-pound trap or a line of traps behind them, and they'll keep migrating, taking these big, long migrations down to Mexico or Central America and back up to Alaska and try to keep swimming because that's that's their life. They've got to do that to follow the food or to keep mating. So they'll be dragging this, and over this time, Every time they move their fins, every time they kick, the the plastic rope will cut into them. Imagine, you know, being you're having your skin waterlogged and then rubbing up against something rough. It just literally wears through their skin. So we did an episode and we, you know, the humpbacks coming back. It's like we've done one on bald eagles. These are gigantic, huge um, conservation success stories that have happened within our lives. So, you know, we don't like doom and gloom because I don't think that you know, really inspires people and, you know, people can just feel hopeless. So we love stories where there's a good success. So, you know, let's do one on humpbacks and talk about that. But at the same time, we're talking about conservation and we have to, we can't relax. You know, these are things that we have to keep after. So what is the main threat to them? Uh, You know, there is climate change, food supply and things like that, but a direct human impact is entanglement. So that inspired Joe and I not even having anything to do with the show, but that inspired the two of us to join this team where we train every year, where we go out and we use all kinds of that. That show will will show you some of the crazy things we do in tiny little boats. You know, you're going up for a 50 foot whale and you're in a 10 foot boat, uh, you know, with a stick with a sharp knife on the end of it. It's kind of everything your mother told you not to do. Uh, You know, bouncing boats, sharp knives, uh, wild animals that are in pain, that are panicking. Um, But so in that show, we do show some uh, live disentanglements, but they were done by um, Joe and I have never been on a live whale that we have, you know, which is fortunate. You know, we train every year and we're ready, but we hope it's a skill that we don't have to use. But uh, because people, all of those were entanglements that did happen here, um, you know, out of the Strait of Juan de Fuca, we've gone on responses where we've had to suddenly jump on a little plane and fly over to Port Angeles and then head up to Nia Bay and go out but you know you're you're talking about a big ocean and if you don't have a report right away or if someone doesn't stand by like a whale watcher or a fisherman whoever sees the entangled whale then the whale can be off and again it could take them 6 months then to die so um yeah we're training on that i think the episode you know did a did a pretty good job of talking about the success and then you know the ongoing threats that we still have and also you know the, the responsible part of it that i appreciated was letting letting people know this is not something for just anybody to do you have to be highly trained i think joe made the comment and you probably wrote the words uh, that it's a bit like disarming a bomb right right if you if you cut the wrong line you may never get the line off of that animal. And, and and unfortunately, people do get killed that are highly trained. But you also see these YouTube videos of somebody in their bathing suit in Hawaii or in South America or Central America or Mexico where they've cut it off with a knife. So, you know, people want to do the right thing. They want to cut something off. And, and there have even been instances where the first thing we are trained to do is to attach a, a transmitter, a satellite transmitter. People will grab that and cut it off of the whale thinking they're trying to help, you know. So so part of that is just getting people educated that the most important thing you can do is report it and then stand by until somebody that's trained can get out there. 
If you're just joining us, our guests are Dr. Joe Gatos from the Doc Society and producer Bob Friel as we explore their film series, Salish Sea Wild, on YouTube. We're going to take a short break, but stay with us. And we're back, and thanks for listening. Let's return now to our conversation with wildlife veterinarian and the science director for the Sea Doc Society, Joe Gatos, and his friend and colleague, Bob Friel, the producer of the YouTube channel, Salish Sea Wild. The Salish Sea is just such an incredibly productive uh, marine ecosystem. And uh, I also wonder about the challenges as far as like, it's cold and you've got, you know, very strong currents. So can you talk a little bit about, you know, there is, an, there is a bit of difficulty involved. This is not easy work. Yeah, I, when people ask about underwater videography up here, you know, it's kind of like putting yourself in a giant washing machine filled with ice cubes and then, you know, trying to sketch a copy of the Mona Lisa or something like that. But um, yeah, we've, we've had some, uh, you know, experiences where, you know, I've uh, we got caught in down currents where I've got a big camera and lights in my one hand. My other hand is grabbing on to the, the base of a piece of bulk kelp. And Joe, who's six, four or something like that, he's on he's grabbing onto my leg to keep from being swept away. Yeah. And uh, yeah, we'll, we'll wind up in situations like that and then have to come up and go, OK. Do we have a TV show? <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Yeah. And, you know, it's we're, we're lucky. Both Bob and I have, have dove a lot. And we go through training with the diving, just like we do for boating and just like we do for the large whale disentanglement, things like that. But it's, it's, it's a complex area and things can be unpredictable. And so, so you know, we, are, we always have to be ready to, to call it, to say, okay, this is not the day it's going to happen. The wind is picked up or the visibility is terrible. Um, and then... On the other side of that, Bob is really good at crafting the story. You know, we did one Salish Sea after dark where it's it's actually quite safe for us to go to a place that we've dove before when there's a slack current, dive there at night. We have backup lights. But for the general public, that is like a really energizing sort of thing. You're going in there when to see what at night, you know, so we can sometimes use some of that. Um, whether it's the wind or the waves or the darkness, uh, to, to our advantage to make the story a, a little bit more exciting, a little bit more interesting. Yeah, I also remember you did an episode uh, on an island, I think Destruction Island, with the puffins. <laughs> the puffins what could go and, wrong with a name like Destruction <laughs> Island? And you're like, you're out there at night, camped next to a dead whale carcass. And my favorite, my favorite line in there is the description of the, the puffin calls, the, the whoopee the cushion puffin calls. <laughs> and like you know and even that didn't didn't make it behind the scenes but the last day we we're getting out of there and one of the scientists broke his kneecap on a rock and bob and i crafted a splint for him out of the jawbone of one of those gray whales and had to call in the coast guard helicopter and they sent down a rescue swimmer and medevaced him out with the whale jawbone strapped to his leg so he wouldn't bend it. I mean, so there are these kind of things that happen like that that are like, 
oh yeah, that was our life. That's what we were doing yesterday at this time. Wow. Yeah, and much to my, you know, everybody who I know who's who does video, it's like, well, where's the footage? I was like, I'm sorry, I went into rescue mode. Yeah, I you're... totally forgot about the camera. And uh, Joe and I were just treating him for shock and uh, splitting his leg. Yeah, you're doing the right thing, not the film thing. Um, <laughs> all right, yeah. let me talk about um, my personal favorite episode. Tell us about the dog that sniffs whale poop. <laughs> Bob, you start. Oh, okay. Yeah. So we, you know, we, we love killer whales and they're, you know, an iconic species out here in the Northwest. And we knew about there's this program called Conservation Canines, which uses dogs around the world to help um, conserve endangered species like tigers and uh, all kinds of things. And they also work with killer whales. And we'll get into that part of the science. But, you know, Joe and I love dogs. He's got a half crocodile half beer keg and i have a living <laughs> puppet so we're all we're all about dogs and we bond over dogs and it's like okay a dog story and joe is a veterinarian so i'm like well here is our sailor sea wild unique take on this let's you know let's really go into the vet part of it so uh it was a dream for <laughs> a dream for us because we were able to start a killer whale episode with a dog attacking Joe and trying to lick him to death. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, and I'll let Joe talk about, you know, and we got to talk about not just killer whale science, but also some cool stuff that people may not know about their own dogs and what makes them physiologically uh, adept and just perfect for helping us do conservation on killer whales and other species. Yeah, tell us, a, tell us about that dog. I want to know more about the backstory of that dog. So this dog, her name's her name's Eba, and she's a street dog from Sacramento. And her owner just happens to be a killer whale biologist. And so, you know, she she picked this dog up. I think her sister picked it up, and then she got it from her sister. And she she said, you know, we really need to be able to capture poop because we can test for pregnancy hormones, we can test for stress hormones. It's it's just a invaluable from a scientific perspective to tell us about these whales with that without ever having to lay hands on the whales themselves. And so she trained that dog to be able to smell poop on the water. And it's just it's just the cutest little dog, probably weighs about 22 pounds or so. And she'll take it out on the boat. It goes out onto the bow of the boat when it's working and just starts sniffing. And it's like a pointer looking for a quail or something like that. When it's, you know, and she's navigating her boat or her husband is two, 300 yards, 400 yards behind the whales. And when that dog strikes a scent, it just directs them right to it. And then they can pick the poop up right off of the water. And the dog gets to play with a little, you know, torn up rope for a couple minutes and then it's back working again and it's like man i love this world that we live in <laughs> i love that we can have dogs to work with killer whales and you know the killer whales are coming right by the boat at some points and she could care less because that's not her job you know her job is to is to smell out that poop and can tell us a bit about what makes dogs so unique from a veterinarian uh, point of view about their their incredible senses that they're able to do that yeah, and and Bob really did some good deep dives with that, and even called a a friend of mine at University of Pennsylvania that has a conservation canine working center where they have dogs that smell cancer and and things like that. But you know, they, they just look at the size of their nose compared to the size of our nose. You know, so those turbinates that they have in there, how much more surface area they have, the fact that they can bring that air in there and then have that air go back and forth. I mean, there's a lot of little adapt adaptations like that. I think 
they see the world through their nose as much, if not more, than they see it through their eyes. It's like a killer whale using their ears to see the world. It's just, it's got to be so different for them when they go out there. And, you know, even our pet dogs, right? Oh, there was a raccoon here about four hours ago. There was a deer here last night. Here's the place where the neighbor's dog came down. You know, we're not picking up any of that stuff when we go out. Yeah, we have a fox in our neighborhood, and I can always tell um, my dog's alert on it. You know, that, that that's not the usual. Oh, I just want to go sniff over here. It's like, oh, uh, hey, this is this is important. I got to sniff this out. It's amazing how they can do that. And I always think about you know when the dog is, and I like to take mine for rides and go drive fairly slow so they can enjoy it. And she's my little dog sticks her head out, and I always just think about the rush of smells she's getting. That's got to be just like incredible experience for her yeah she's smelling stories right it's not just yeah. that it was an animal it was where it was when it's like the harbor seals with their whiskers they they get the whole story they know what was there what species were there when they were there what direction they went what even the health that they're in i mean we we just really have no idea we you know we know they use that to to pick mates and everything so they're they're discerning sense about about how healthy they are what stage of uh you know estrus they're in things like that so yeah it's it's really wonderful yeah i was just amazed to think about a, a dog doing conservation work for killer whales it just kind of blew my mind it's the best <laughs> yeah. yeah and you mentioned the the harbor seals uh, there was one episode with a baby that was just so adorable, but they have some really fascinating, you know, talking about adaptations and the, the their eyes, you know, I had never really thought about it before, but talk about the seal's eyes and how they enable them to see underwater, you know, whereas we need a mask and it's even hard for us then. Yeah. Yeah. Bob had the great idea of looking at these skulls. Um, and, you know, a skull of a harbor seal looks a lot like a black bear, except when you look at the eye sockets. The eyes are probably almost three times as big as the black bear's eyes. And, and you know, they can dive to 1,600 feet deep. And, and in the ocean, really, no light is penetrating beyond 1,000 feet deep. It's just blackness down there. And so they're, they're able to use those eyes to see every little bit of light that's there. And then like Bob was just mentioning earlier, once they get below that, they're fishing by Braille. They're using their whiskers. And so when when they're up on the surface and, and we, you know, we see them in rehabilitation and things like that, and their eyes are so pinpoint on the surface that you can't even see to the back of the eye. And that eye is just really designed to open up and let every little bit of light that's in there so they can see things, you know, 900 feet deep, they're using light from the surface. And um, it would look like, you know, what Bob's a bottom of a coal mine at midnight for us. You yeah. Know, and they're, they're still sensing that light. Yeah. And as an, as an underwater photographer, what I found fascinating, again, I, I love one of my favorite parts of, of doing this is that I get to research all these different species and, you know, I know a little bit about them, but I always am looking for something else that's cool and not, you know, any, anybody will talk about, uh, you know, Oh, you know, how, not, not to knock you, you, what you just said, but okay, there's fun facts of how deep they dive and things like that. But, you know, what we do, since we're so science-based and fact-based, it's like, let's add value. Let's, we're scientists, let's really go through the literature and find some stuff out and, you know, come to find, you know, just like I do to get great video and lousy visibility, I have to use a dome port. 
well, the the seal's eyes are are like a dome port, you know, unlike ours, which are foggy underwater, they have a dome port, which serves to create a virtual image so that they see things more clearly. And then with the whiskers, we kind of knew that they, you know, okay, they use their whiskers, a cat uses its whiskers, but then you do the deep dive into that and you find out that they are these little tiny um, uh, adaptations, little bumps on them that help with the hydrodynamics because you think, okay, they use their whiskers, but okay, but they're swimming. So the whiskers will be plastered back against their face, but, but no. they're not because they have these tiny little structures that cut through the water so that they stay steady and can read the signals of the fish going by. So, you know, that's, that's, I really love that about our show. We get them. They're sensing their prey fish with their whiskers. It, yeah. It's amazing. Amazing. Well, we're about out of time, but before we let you go, how's what's the reaction been like for these films? I, I thoroughly enjoyed them, but what kind of feedback have you been getting? <laughs> I would say people really do like it. You know, we have a direct line to a lot of fifth grade classes. We wrote a book on the Sailor Sea for fifth graders. We produced some free science curriculum and, and these support that. And so, you know, it's a no brainer. Bob and I are like fifth graders anyway. And, and so they're digging that. But what's been surprising and fun for me is when you get somebody from the governor's office or somebody from a newspaper that says, you know, I saw that. I had never thought about that. I want to do a story on this, or I've never really thought about how important this is. We need to pay more attention to this. You know, those have been the moments for me that it just makes it all really worthwhile to do this. It's the personal uh, mission of of Joe and I. I mean, it's what we believe in. It's to affect change, right, for the better of the environment, for the ecosystem, and then through the One Health concept, through through all of us. So, yeah, it's really re rewarding to see that the, we have grandparents who write us and say, we figured, oh, our, our kids would like this because they like octopus, but we watched it and we really learned something. And gee, we, we really should, you know, proactively protect this species or wow, we really have to do something about forage fish. I didn't know what the word forage fish meant, but I now know that if we're going to have salmon, if we're going to have killer whales, if we're going to have bears and forests, we need to protect forage fish. And then we'll give them a little more. Now, you know what, you got to learn how to protect what seagrass is and what kelp is and like that. So uh, for me, th that's that's the really rewarding part of it. Uh, you know, I love seeing, you know, Joe gets stopped when we're in the ferry lines and little kids will come up to him and ask him about uh, what was it like to have an eagle bite you or, or what was it like that? So uh, the fact that we're getting through uh, to me, that's that's the best thing about it. You guys are a great team and they are wonderful films. I highly recommend them. Uh, it's been really cool to talk to you both about uh, the making of these wonderful film series you have, uh, Salish Sea Wild. And uh, I, I hope our listeners will all just go check it out on YouTube because it's, it's, they're really good. Thank you so much for having us, Dave. Yeah, thanks, Dave. This has been great. Thanks again to our guests, Dr. Joe Gatos, veterinarian and science director for the UC Davis School of Veterinary Medicine's CDOC Society on Orcas Island in Washington State, and filmmaker producer Bob Friel. Check out their YouTube channel, Salish Sea Wild, and learn more about their work and even donate to the organization on the website, cdocsociety.org. 
Blue Dot is a production of North State Public Radio, a service of Cap Radio in beautiful and talented Northern California. We're distributed by PRX. If you want to revisit, share, or check out past episodes, you can do just that on our website, mynspr.org. And while you're at it, subscribe to our podcast so you never miss an episode on our website, the NPR One app, or wherever you get your podcast groove on. The theme music is by Matt Schiltz. Blue Dot is engineered and produced by the maestro, Matt Fiddler. For all of us here, I remind you there that from deep space, we all live on a pale blue dot. <laughs>